0: Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Irony, irony is simply this, is the clash between expectations and reality. And if you grew up in, like, if you listen to, like, rock and roll in the 1990s, remember Alanis Morissette, right? Isn't it ironic? It's like rain on on your wedding day, right? It's a free ride that you've you've already paid. And and so there's this whole idea of of irony, expectations versus reality. And there's some things in our life that we actually say, like, isn't it ironic? Let me just give you some things that, that I learned as I was just thinking about irony. The Bible is the most shoplifted book in the United States. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Why didn't Alanis put that in her song? Well, what about this one? McDonald's employee handbook, when it was up, because they took it down, they had it online on their health page, they took down their health page for their employees, warned their employees, do not eat the hamburgers or the french fries. It's bad for your health. Isn't it ironic? Think about this one. The man who created the stop sign, the stop sign. Why do you need a stop sign? He never learned to drive. Isn't it ironic, right? He never learned to drive. And so in other words, irony is the clash between expectations and reality. It's the good advice that you never took, and so what we're going to see today is because today's a very significant day in church history. What is it? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, right now. Do me a favor. No one take the palms out of church. I was told no one's allowed to take them. They're for Good Friday. Okay, leave them alone. So when we think about Palm Sunday, here's what I'm going to do. I want to talk about the irony of that event. Because when we think about Palm Sunday, there's a word that we know about in Scripture that talks about this day. That it was called the what? The something entry. What was it called? The, anyone know? Triumphant. triumphant entry. First service, no one knew it. They're like, palm entry? I'm like, dude, where did you go to church before this? Amen. Right? Everyone knows Palm Sunday is about the triumphant entry. I think they were just tired and, and sleepy. But, but it's this whole idea of this triumphant entry. And one thing that we learn about Jesus is this. A lot of things are ironic. Our expectations of what we want Jesus to do are often opposite of what he wants to accomplish in our lives. And what Jesus wants to see in our lives is oftentimes not fully played out. And so when we look at this triumphant entry, I want us to really look at three different ironies that Jesus wants to attack in our hearts so that our expectations are in line with who he is as the son of God who takes away the sins of this world. Amen. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 7. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 7. As you know, we've been studying the gospel of Mark. We've been doing it very differently. We've been going through these little mini-series. We first talked about discipleship, and then we talked about what true religion is, and then as we went into, into Lent, we started talking about this whole idea of the, the upside down. What we need to do is allow Jesus to turn our, our lives right side up, So let's look at Mark chapter 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. So, If you have the ability to underline anything, underline that in your scripture, whether it's your tablet or your hardcover Bible, a donkey that has never been ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street. Tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. So let me give you a little background. Background is so imperative. Because if we don't understand the background of what's taking place, we manipulate the text to say exactly what we want it to say. So every single Sunday, I do a little history lesson. Just three minutes of of some background to the narrative because the background is preparation for what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. So here's the background. It is the week... Before the crucifixion. And everyone is traveling to Jerusalem. Jews from all over the world, not just local Jews, but Jews from all over the world are traveling to Jerusalem. So think about scripture. Think about the Old Testament. There were Jews in other countries, not just right there, And so people would journey for a month plus to get to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that that this was the Passover, where he would be the ultimate lamb of God. And so Jesus and his disciples went to, to two towns, Bethphage and Bethany. And Bethany is really significant because Bethany was the landing place for the last week of Jesus's life. And so when you really study the Gospels and you take that that Holy Week and all the events, Jesus would go into the city and back to Bethany, into the city and back to Bethany. And so Jesus was saying, I'm going to stay in the safest place that I know as I prepare for the end of my life. And so they get to this place and Jesus tells the disciples, he says, go get a donkey An unridden donkey, a colt, one that is young in age, but strong enough to hold a grown man. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'll tell you where that donkey will be. And when you see the owners of that donkey, just tell them when they ask, who is the donkey for? And and I kind of think about this like, like a Jedi mind trick, right? The donkey's for Jesus, may he have it. Give him the donkey. Just make sure he brings it back. And so he goes and he gets the donkey and everything that Jesus says happens. They find this donkey tied up. People are demanding why are they stealing it? And they say it's for the Lord. And Jesus gets the donkey. Now, the donkey is so much more than what we think it is. It's not just because it's unwritten, because there's something both prophetic and historical about this donkey. I think one of the things that we always have to remember when we're reading scripture is that Jesus did not come to abolish everything in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. And so when you look at this whole idea of a donkey, it's both historical and prophetic. And the problem is as churches, we only talk about the prophetic. We lose the deeper understanding of what has taken place before Jesus. That Jesus says, I've come as a human and I am human. And God is going to use my humanness to fulfill all the things that he had planned to make the world right side up. And so, prophetically, yes, Genesis 49, it talks about it. We also see in Zechariah 9.9 9, that there's this prophecy about Jesus coming in on an unridden donkey colt. But even more so in Genesis 49, it talks about the, the oracle of Jacob. The oracle of Jacob that talks about the procession of a donkey. And so, yes, it was prophetic, but historical is, is just as important. So what does a, a donkey symbolize? You see, oftentimes, would you ever think that a king would go to war on a donkey? Like, dude, if you got into, like, a joust with a donkey, what would you think? <laughs> They're dead. We won. My horse is bigger than yours, right? Right? My horse is stronger. My horse is more muscular. And if you saw someone show up on a donkey, you would think about, like, he's a donkey right? Right? He, did he just say that? I did just say that. But it's this whole idea of, of this wrestling. But, but think about this. When you think about historically, the horse, a horse is called a war horse. And a king would have gone on a white stallion. Think about Judas of Maccabee. Historically, what would have happened? What did happen? When Judas of Maccabee went into Jerusalem, he got on his big white stallion along with all of his soldiers and he went galloped into Jerusalem to overtake Jerusalem. Hanukkah. When you think about Hanukkah, that's what happened. So whenever people saw a horse, they thought about war, battle, conflict, death, victory, someone being On top and winning. But historically, a donkey made a really, really important point. If anyone went into a city, if anyone ever went into a village, it meant that the king was coming in peace. In peace. That the king was not coming to battle. But the king was coming to bring peace, amendment, to bring unity, to bring relationship, to bring community, to bring life. So think about this. What did everybody want? Everybody wanted Jesus to go into Jerusalem and take over Rome. Because Rome was the one who was in charge of Jerusalem. Herod, King Herod. Think about who he reported to, Caesar. And so Jerusalem was being overwhelmed. And right away, there's this irony of expectations. And the disciples are probably thinking like, donkey? Not horse? But, but what about the horse? Because we're ready to go to war. But you want a donkey. So you're telling us that, that we're not going to war, and there's this is expectation of Jesus. Irony number one: that the disciples wanted Jesus to be very, very different than who He is, not who He was, but who He is. And my question to you is this: What are your expectations of Jesus? That Jesus would just kind of trample into every one of your circumstances and destroy everyone that you have conflict with? So let me ask you a question. How many of you would love Jesus to do that? Raise your hand. Seriously, three people? When you are in conflict, what do you want Jesus to do? You want Jesus to destroy that individual. You want him to wipe them out. You want to be able to say, "Uh uh-huh. Right? Jersey, amen. Uh Uh-huh. So let me ask a question again. When you are in conflict... You wanna win, right? You wanna win. And you not only wanna win, but you wanna win big. And that's why when when the king would come in on the white horse and there was gold and tapestries all over the horse, it was saying, I'm not only gonna win, I'm gonna intimidate you. And how much do we want God to intimidate our enemies? Jesus never came to intimidate our enemies. The irony is this, is that Jesus came that he would ride into our hearts and bring peace in such a way that peace would come to us so we can bring peace even to those we are in conflict with. Love those who hate you. Serve those who persecute you. And all along, all the time that these disciples have been with Jesus is that their expectations and their reality is is always being flipped upside down to them. But really Jesus is saying, I'm turning all of your expectations and the reality right side up. And we live in a world, we live in a culture that we do not line up with Jesus, but rather we expect Jesus to align with us. And Jesus says, I don't align with anybody except for my heavenly father. And because I align myself with my heavenly father, check this out. Now I'm sitting at his right hand and all things fall prey to me. And the way that Jesus comes to enter this world is through peace, not through war. There's only going to be one final war that really, really counts. And that's the end of the end. But until then, Jesus is going to do everything in our lives, not to rush in like a stallion, destroying everything that's before us, but rather Jesus wants to step into our lives and bring peace. And that's why Paul says, it's the peace of God, the shalom of God, that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so what's your expectations and so right away, when you see this whole, like, like, like getting ready for this, this parade, this procession, the disciples are like, I don't know if I signed up for this. It's already looking different. Maybe it's not this Holy Week. Maybe it's next year's Holy Week. Maybe it's in a couple of years from now. But I swear, like, this was supposed to be the week. We got to get ready. But maybe we can take a deep breath. And we have to be careful of our expectations we put on God. We have to. Let's continue reading. Verse 8: Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they, they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! blessings on the one who comes in the name of the lord blessings on the king the coming king of our ancestor david praise god in highest heaven now this was not planned this was a spontaneous parade people would have been traveling in But when people saw Jesus and they heard of Jesus and they knew of Jesus and maybe they encountered Jesus and they're starting to think like, Passover? Jesus is going down into the city? Is something about to happen? Because the Passover was God's way of redeeming Israel. That God saved Israel thousands of years prior and they were waiting for a second passover lamb not blood that would be put on a doorway but a, a lamb that was slaughtered for every single one of them one final sacrifice and you could hear the rumbling of the crowd it's kind of like if it's like when the beatles came to america they had no idea where they were landing and all of a sudden, you, you could just hear the music playing all around. And, and all the people started chasing them. And they were getting chased. They had to hide and they had to run. And there you see, you know, Ringo running away. Probably like turned around, stoned out of his mind. Like, yeah, this is pretty cool, right? But they were running away. But this is, this is like that. This is completely different. There, there was an excitement in the air. A buzz in the air. Could this actually be that? And the disciples take their cloaks and they put it on the donkey to soften his seats. And as they start going down, all of a sudden, three things take place. The crowds take their cloaks off and they throw it on the ground. It's a sign of royalty. It's like the red carpet. Then when we know that, you, you watch all these, these events, all these award ceremonies, and it's called the, the red carpet, right? It's an hour or two hours before the, the award ceremony. They took their cloaks and they threw them on the ground and it created like a red carpet and it was a sign of authority that everyone who threw their cloak at the ground said, Jesus, I surrender to you. I mean, think about that. How many cloaks did they have? How many did they bring with them? And they knew that this this donkey was going to proceed over it and they threw it down and said, said, you are Lord, you are King. And then they took these branches, the the palm branches, and they started waving them. It was a sign of victory. So back during World War I, World War II, there were these processions going to battle and coming home from battle. It's historical. It's more than just prophetic. That whenever armies were sent out to battle, that that people would do something very, very deliberate. You remember uh, Yankee Stadium? I think they were the first ones to do the white towels. Right? And why did they do the white towels? A form of intimidation. A form of saying, we're behind you. A form of saying that, that no matter how down you get, we will win. There's power in the towel. And for some reason at Yankee Stadium, people actually believe that there's, there's power in the towel. And people are thinking there's power in the, in the branches. And we're gonna wave them because when things are really getting down, they're gonna remember the branches being waved because these are a sign of celebration that the battle is already won. I love when FDU played Purdue in the first round of the tournament. The coach said, We're gonna beat them. Really? Fairleigh Dickinson's gonna beat Purdue, who was ranked number one in the nation for five weeks? Seriously? And it was so funny because that, 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 that night they kept replaying the, the clip where the, where the coach was like, we'll beat them, we'll beat them. And then they talked to the, the coach afterwards like, well, I really didn't mean it that way. I'm like, yes, you did. Yeah. You were going to do everything to hype your team up to know that they can win. And this is what he said. He said, if we played Purdue 100 times, we would win once and lose 99 times. And this was our one. What better day to beat Purdue? Amen? Uh-huh, right? So think about this. There was this excitement in the air. There's a celebration, but they had no idea that what they were celebrating was actually complete opposite of how victory would come. So, so think about what they were singing. Write this down if you're taking notes. I know some of you take notes. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. The halal psalms. Halal. H-A-L-L-E-L. The halal psalms. And these were the psalms of victory. These were the prophetic songs of who Jesus is. They were not only that, but they were the prophetic songs of what God does in our lives when we are completely and fully surrendered to him. The halal's if you ever feel like you're going to have a bad day and your world's about to fall apart, you take time. You open to Psalm 113 and you read all the way through Psalm 118 and you are going to be encouraged by the victory that God wants to bring in your life. It's where we see in Psalms 113 through through 118, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one that comes from King David. And there's a celebration. And there's celebration in song, in action, waving of the branches. But there's also celebration in surrenderance. You see, when you think about the irony of this, and it's irony number two, is that that the expectations of what they want Jesus to do was very different than what Jesus had come to accomplish. They wanted a temporary king, a king that would only help their generation. They wanted a temporary king that was going to shift Jerusalem back to what Jerusalem was once intended to be. They never had an eternal perspective of, of generations to come. One of my buddies' families owns a, a company that, that is around for generations. It's on generation three. And he actually is prepping his business for future generations. I love listening to his strategic plan because his strategic plan could be simply this. All that I make now is all geared towards me rather than reinvesting into the future of those who are going to come behind him. And what you see is that those, those businesses that, that literally invest in themselves, they slowly and die and, and, and soonly what, crumble and die. They're lucky if they make it to the second generation. You see, when you think about the the, the Israelites, when you think about the Jewish community, they were so focused on their generation and their now and all the immediate things in front of them, they forgot that the king that is supposed to come was supposed to set up the generations for the future and for all eternity. I mean, think about this. Think about during COVID. All all, All the stimulus money we got. How many of us just ran out and spent it? Do I get an amen? I'm the only one. Dude, I have like so many issues in my soul. I'm the only one. Everyone, you guys should be my pastor, right? Like seriously, right? Like, but seriously, how many of you put a new deck on? How many bought a new TV? How many bought a new car? How many went on vacation? How many ate way too many dinners out? Yeah, come on. There we go. Only one person saying yes, right? But think about this. Inflation. Who's... Reaping the penalty of all that money that was given out. Not only us, but our kids. Our kids. Think about the housing market. Think about if you're a young couple and you want to buy a new house. What's the rate? 7%. What, what, what is ours? Ours was like 2.75. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of payments throughout a month. I think it's ours is 3, 3.15, 3.15. But, but it's one of those things where like, 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 we don't even think about the future. And the irony is, is that Jesus says that, that I have come to bring a generational blessing through my death and resurrection that's bigger than your temporary understanding of God. That's why it's called the triumphant entry, done once and for all. So how you living? How you living? Are you living for the moment? Are you saying, Jesus, the things that you are doing in my life, I am taking in an inventory and reinvesting the things that you are pouring in me and through me to be a blessing to all those around me. Think about that. As a parent, are you just trying to rush your kids to get to college? Are you just trying to get from paycheck to paycheck? Are you just trying to, like, 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 kind of survive the moment? Are you actually saying, Jesus, whatever you are doing in me, I want you to do an eternal work in my life. I don't want you to win my battles. I want you to win my war. I don't want you to win the little things only because I only come to you in desperation. But rather, I want you to win the war of my soul knowing that every other battle that I go through, you will step in and bring victory no matter what. And that's what was happening. And that's what happens to us is we get so self-consumed in the moment that we say, Jesus, rescue me now. Jesus, rescue me now. Jesus, rescue me now. Rather than saying, Jesus, you are my victor. So no matter what I go through, you have already rescued me. And this takes intimacy. You see, Jesus does not have his favorites. Do I get an uh uh-huh? He does not have his favorites. He has his intimates. He has his intimates. Those people that say, Holy Spirit, transform my life. Do whatever you need to do within me and through me to bring that that final transformation, to get me to that next place. I give you permission. Those are the ones who understand triumph. 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 And perseverance births character. Verse 11. Can I just say this? I'm just going to be totally vulnerable. I love what Jesus is doing in my life. And I love what he's doing because it came at a point when I was a certain age and said, I'm done. I give you permission to win no matter what, no matter how long it takes, no matter how much stuff I have to go through. I will let you always win. And I see that when I handed over that expectation to Jesus, everything changed. Scripture says, "And I will give you the desires of your heart." Have you ever spent enough time in silence or in the word or in prayer that you can actually say, "God, what do I truly desire?" Because if God really gives us the desires of our hearts, it means he goes deep into our soul. And he wrestles with our emotions and our intellect and our will. And he brings all three of them into alignment. And he says, when I see the reality of who you are, I will bless you. Let's continue. Mark 11, verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So when you think about the triumphant entry, where do you most often think Jesus was only going to? Anyone. If you read the other gospels, Jerusalem, right? When we think about the triumphant entry, we think about him proceeding only into Jerusalem. You look at Matthew and you look at Luke. And it's almost like when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets off the donkey and some things occur. But Mark not only says that he went into Jerusalem, but his exact destination was the temple. Why? Why? I think it's fascinating that Mark even said that when he got to the temple, he walked around. He looked around. He observed what was going on. And because it was late in the day, he went back to Bethany. So think about this. There would have been a lot of preparation getting ready for Passover week. There would have been a lot. There would have been people running around, staff and everyone getting things ready. The marketplace would have been filled with, with turtle doves and, and, and lambs and, and, and cattle, all for the slaughterings. There would have been a lot of busyness. But at some point, the temple was going to close. But Jesus went to the temple. And when he went into the temple, I, I, and again, I, I'm, I'm kind of elaborating this. But it says that he looked around. In other words, he, he pondered. He transfixed his gaze upon all that was happening. And I don't just think the people in the temple, but, but I think I, I, he would have saw the, the big curtain that was going to be torn in five or six days from then. And then he saw the big altar where the, where the animals would have been slaughtered. And people would have lined up that if they were poor, they'd have two turtle doves. And if they had more money, they would have a, a lamb. And if they were really, really wealthy, they would have cattle. And you'd always given with the cattle and the lambs and the turtle doves. It wasn't first come, first serve. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been. That's not how that area of the world acted or behaved and nor does many of them still behave they still behave in that means class And all I could think about is Jesus is envisioning all these animals being slaughtered for the sins year after year after year thousands of years the animals being slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered and Jesus says and I'm the last I'm going to get slaughtered and everything my father has told me is going to become a reality. I'm going to be beaten and bruised. And because of the stripes, in other words, the the skin, the flesh that's going to be ripped off my body, healing is going to be made for others. It's funny when you really study Matthew and Luke and you read the procession, we think about Jesus kind of doing like the parade wave. Hey, how's it going? Hey, kissing babies and shaking hands. No. In one of the Gospels, it actually says that he wept. He wept. It actually says that he wept. He didn't cry, he didn't get misty eyed. He wept because he knew that this was his processional death. And I can just see him looking at that that, that temple and being like, this is it. Their victory comes at my expense. Those who don't even get me, I'm giving myself. Hebrews 10.10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. But it's even bigger than this. Remember what it says in John? It says this in John. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, The dwelt among us, the real translation is this tabernacled around us in other words set himself up to be with us so let's go back to the old testament the tabernacle was where the presence of god was until david assigned his son to build the temple where this presence of god would live forever amen but ezekiel 10 bc 586 Ezekiel 10, write it down. Use it in your devotions this week, Ezekiel 10. In Ezekiel 10, the prophet Ezekiel said, and the glory of God has been taken out of the temple. So for the next many, 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 many years, God's presence wasn't even there. The people were so used to their expectations of God, they thought the presence of God was with them. They were going through their routines and their daily stuff and reading their Bible and showing up and singing songs, and God's presence was stolen. God said, "Uh uh-uh, I will not rest amongst you until the word becomes flesh and tabernacles with you. And so for all of those years, God's presence wasn't there until Zechariah was in the temple and the angel of God showed up and spoke. And that's why so many people were so blown away at that that scenario of Zechariah, like, you must have saw God. You must have been in God's presence because they forgot the presence of god and jesus said i have come to restore the presence not in a place but in each and every person who is willing to receive the sacrifice of the lamb of god who takes away the sins of this world. Jesus said, in three days, I will destroy the temple and will rebuild it. And he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his tabernacle. The presence of God. Let me ask you, where is the, where is the presence of God in your life? I love that a few years ago, Sue and I went on vacation and we came back and we stepped in the sanctuary and I just started crying. I'm like, wow, God's presence really lives here. Have you ever felt God's presence here? Hey, have you ever like walked away and be like, dude, I think I just met with Jesus, right? Have you ever been during a worship song and, and you literally felt the Holy Spirit wooing you and changing you and molding you into something new? And you think like, wow, I got to get to church, right? I got to get to church, and then and then something happens, and you stop going to church. Like I don't feel God anymore, so I have to go to church. Because God lives in the church. No, God lives in His people. And Jesus says, I will tabernacle in you. The expectation was that a kingdom would temporarily come, that they can tangibly see. And call their wins. And the irony says, I haven't come to do any of that. I've come to do it within you. That your victory is through my death. Expectations. Reality. How do we allow this Holy Week to align them properly, And we have to flip it right side up that the reality of who Jesus is and we take our expectations and we surrender them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus did not come to slaughter your enemies. He came to bring peace in your hearts. Jesus did not come to make a spectacle of others but rather to be the humble servants of that doesn't need to sit on a throne here on earth, but rather sits on a throne up in heaven. Jesus wasn't going to just make a temple right where everyone all over the globe travels to it and goes to quote unquote Mecca, but rather he says, the moment that you invite me into your life, I tabernacle within you. That is the procession. That is what the triumphant entry is all about. That if God's presence you feel has been taken from you, Jesus is saying that I want to to impart it into you once and for all. Stop having moments with God. That's what he's saying. Stop fighting your battles. Allow my peace to be your victory. That's what Jesus is saying. And his worst day is our greatest day. And he has torn. He has torn that which separates us from God. Every service I do completely different. So I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna trust the moment. How many of you have had expectations upside down of who God is in your life? How how many of you have really said to Jesus like, I will serve you if, or I will give you my life when? How many of you purposely come to church because you need a little Holy Ghost jolt? And Jesus is saying this today stop. 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 Let Jesus proceed into your life today by making him Lord so his peace can reign in your hearts. And you can begin to allow him to do an eternal work that's not only going to change you, but everything else that you are a part of. That's the triumphant entry that Jesus wants to do today. And that's it. Would you pray with me?